0: Welcome to the Carbon Stations podcast, where we speak to some of the leading figures in the emerging carbon industry. Joining us for today's episode is Matthew Trudeau, CEO of Carbon Removable Marketplace, Nori. Matt, it's a pleasure to have you with us. Uh, traditionally, as you know, on this podcast, we try to get to know our guests a little bit closer before diving into the carbon side of things. So if you don't mind, I'd love for you to tell us a little bit more about your background and uh, what you used to do before joining Nori.
1: Absolutely. And thank you for having me, Violet. It's a pleasure to be here. So I joined Nori back in late May of this year, 2023, but prior to joining Nori, I spent about 25 years of my career in the financial markets. First half of that was mostly on the brokerage side of the business, working for technology enabled retail and institutional brokerage firms, <clears throat> names like Charles Schwab and Instinet. Uh, And then the second half of my career, I transitioned to focus more on the financial exchange side of the business. And there I was responsible for part of the teams that launched, at this point, 12 different financial markets of different kinds for different asset classes in different places around the world. Everything from a fully licensed U.S. securities exchange called the Investors Exchange, or IEX, uh, that was featured in the Michael Lewis book, Flash Boys, uh, and then most recently, just prior to joining Nori, I was part of the team that launched and operated a CFTC-regulated futures exchange and clearinghouse for derivatives on digital assets. <clears throat> and so a lot of experience launching and operating financial markets, launching, designing and launching market-related products, so electronic trading products, but then also listed products that trade on the exchanges, and a lot of expertise in market structure and market strategy. So all that really, when I looked at the voluntary carbon markets generally, and Nori specifically, and the state of the markets, which I'm sure we'll get into a bit, uh, just felt like all of that accumulated almost 25 years of experience building and operating financial markets, trading products, and instruments could be brought to bear in the voluntary carbon markets. And and when I paired up my relationships experience And knowledge with the team here at Nori is it was almost 100% accretive. And I just thought that that combination of their knowledge, relationships, and experience for the last six years building out Nori in the voluntary carbon market, with my experience, was a really great combination and maybe unique in the world of the voluntary carbon market.
0: All right. Didn't it feel like too much of a risk? I mean, it's an emerging space and especially 2023 was a really rough year for the carbon markets. Their credibility and transparency were, were questioned heavily and so on.
1: Well, I'll say that most of the, or at least a good part of the, the number of ventures that I've been a part of building have been new ventures. And they've been companies that were started when there's well, there was some kind of a change that, that became a catalyst for the evolution of a market. <clears throat> so early on, it was new technologies. When I first started my career way back in 2000, electronic trading was a brand new thing. Something called direct market access was a brand new thing. So this is the first time that you saw, in fact, retail traders having access to the kind of technology that had been previously only available to professionals and really only available to professionals for a short period of time. So you had all this technological change. Things advanced pretty quickly and the regulations had to respond. And and almost by rule, the regulations typically tend to evolve more slowly and and maybe more thoughtfully than the technology. And so that creates both risk and opportunities. And where I've found the most interesting work in my experience is when you have some sort of a catalyst change or catalyst that's driving change, and there's some risk, but there's also some opportunity. And so when the market structure is relatively immature, where there are new things being developed very rapidly, that's where I've actually enjoyed the work the most and I've had the most success. And that's really, I think, how I would describe the voluntary carbon market today. There's a lot of things that are still developing and in a new and fastly and quickly evolving market, you're going to have some false starts. You're going to have some mistakes. Uh, Unfortunately, you also tend to have some bad actors that are are deliberately being malicious, but you can't judge the entire industry on a few bad actors or or a few bad decisions. And if you look, if you take the long view and you look further out and say, what do we want the market to evolve like and where do we want it to go, then if you have people that come in that have the right mindset, that are focused on stewardship, are focused on responsible behavior, are focused on developing the market and professionalizing it and helping it to achieve its full potential then you can get past some of those early false starts and some of those early pitfalls. And you see that a lot. You know, If you, if you survey the, the financial markets globally, even the most regulated markets in the world and the oldest markets in the world still on a regular basis have instances of bad actors or mistakes that get made. But by and large, those markets function really, really well for the allocation of capital <clears throat> for risk management. And so I don't think it's any different for the voluntary carbon markets. I think they're just young, and they're in the process of maturing.
0: On that note, there's some positive news as well. I don't know whether you've heard it yet, but uh, last week, a, a new paper was published, which completely debunked the paper on which The Guardian based their famous investigation. And it was written by a team of scientists and academics from uh, NASA, MIT, and other major universities. So my hopes personally are that this will help rebuild trust with the VCMs. But that also brings me to the question of how does Nori ensure transparency like? What's your approach to verification of carbon credits, for example?
1: Yeah, look on that last point, just to make a comment. Every industry has its critics. There are always the gadblies. There are always people that opportunistically want to take shots and be critics from the sidelines. Some of them operate in good faith, some of them less so. Uh, so again, I think you have to look past that, and, and you have to talk to the people that are really building the technology, that are really working on the science, that are really working on the policy, not the critics that are just looking for, uh, for headlines that are going to get clicks. <clears throat> and I think if you if you look past all that and you talk to the the people that are earnestly rolling up their sleeves and doing the real work, then you find that that there's a lot more going on than some of those headlines would lead you to believe. And it's good to see other people coming in and being thoughtful about it and providing counter evidence uh, to make make a counter argument. I think that's the best way to deal with with some of the criticism. I would also say that there are admittedly some gaps in the market. There are trust gaps. There are maybe some risk gaps. There are product gaps. There's technology gaps. Again, as I stated, it's a a young and evolving market. And so, yeah, it's not perfect. So you have to look for opportunities where as a, as a, an entrepreneur or a commercial operator, where are there opportunities? And this is, I think, almost the definition of business broadly, but where are there opportunities to develop new products and services that help improve the market, that solve a problem for a customer, help them manage risk, help them achieve goals that, that they're trying to achieve as a business. And that's where I think Nori has a role to play. So one of the things that attracted me about Nori in the very beginning is that throughout my career, I've really gone out of my way to join and work with teams that I felt had a high degree of integrity, that value trust and transparency in building businesses and markets. And I feel like that's really the best way to build a business for longevity if you're not just looking to turn a quick dollar. And so Nori's been around for six years. The team were early pioneers in the voluntary carbon market. They started working on carbon dioxide removal when it was still almost a fringe topic. And now six years later, you've got an entire industry that's come up with a lot of investment and increasing numbers of people from other industries coming in and filling out some of the talent. And I think that's great. And so as I've been here for the last six months, and I brought some of the ideas from from financial markets to some of the conversations here at Nori and, and even some of the things that they were working on before I arrived have really helped us think about what is the future that we want to create and how can Nori play a role in creating products and services to help bring that market future that we envision forward. And I would say the first example of that is the net zero ton product? So we published a white paper back in July for a concept that we were at that time referring to as a blended ton. And the, the idea there was looking at the market landscape, you have on the one hand, nature-based carbon removal credits, like soil organic carbon, which is where Nori got its start. And then you have a, a, a range of other types of carbon removal credits including things like direct air capture, uh, which Nori hasn't historically been involved with. And those nature-based credits generally tend to be available today for carbon that's already removed or being removed from the atmosphere. And let's take direct air capture. That's, by and large, still something to be delivered in the future. So there are a number of projects. It's great to see all the funding and, and all the different entrepreneurs and startups that are building direct air capture businesses. But for the most part, you're talking about credits that won't be available for on the order of, call it, five years and and then scaling out from there. So what that creates is a dynamic where you have companies that are emitting today and will be for the next five years. They like direct air capture because it's deemed to be a more durable or permanent carbon removal solution. But it's generally not available and even in five years from now, it's not going to be available at scale at, or at this, the type of scale that most companies are going to require. <clears throat> and so there's a bit of a conundrum there. You can buy a nature-based credit that is considered to be less durable because carbon sequestered in, sto- in soil uh, does have the possibility or even the likelihood of being re-released at some point in the future. And, and as a just a case in point, we have, Nori has an arrangement with, with the farmers that we work with. Whereby they're committed to the practices for ten years, and so we don't, we don't, uh, excuse me, we don't guarantee the, uh, the, we don't market the credits as being useful for more than than ten years. It's entirely possible that the carbon would stay sequestered in the soil for more than ten years, but we think ten years is a reasonable amount of time and a reasonable level of commitment that the that the farmers can achieve. So you have those credits that are available today that have, let's say, as we've called it, a 10-year life cycle. And you've got direct air capture credits that won't be available for five years. So what do companies that care about the climate, that care about carbon removal, that want to take positive climate action do between today and the five years where some of those credits, those direct air capture credits, start to become available? And our thinking was, well, what what if we took the two different products and we put them together and we said, will pair up a soil organic carbon credit available for carbon already removed from the atmosphere today with a direct air capture credit that will be delivered in, call it, five years from now. And that allows the company to make a carbon emissions offsetting claim today. So they can compensate for current emissions by buying net zero tons, using the soil organic carbon credits to essentially hold the place. And then when the direct air capture credits get delivered in five years, the the credit essentially just rolls and becomes a permanent durable carbon capture credit. And that's, we think, fairly unique in the industry. We got very positive feedback on the initial white paper uh, from a, a broad range of, of folks. We published it, we asked, we solicited public commentary on it, asked anyone who cared to have an opinion to comment on it so we could improve it. And that was in July. And then just a few months later in November, we actually launched the first pilot version of the net zero ton. And in that case, for, for the the durable leg, we're actually working with Stripe, uh, making use of their, their uh, climate API recently launched. And so for the second leg of the net zero ton, the buyer will get access to one of the credits available via Stripe's Climate API.
0: Okay, thank you. Thanks for sharing that. Um, because I was actually going to ask you whether you are partnering with any direct air capture companies for uh, those carbon removal credits. We will. You we will? will. Yeah. Okay. So
1: for the pilot, the, the pilot was great because it allowed us to bring the product to market very quickly and go from a white paper to essentially a proof of concept within a short number of months. And, that you know, that's another thing, too. We want to try to be nimble. We want to move quickly to the extent that the market isn't heavily, heavily regulated right now. It does allow for a lot of creativity and a lot of experimentation, you know, provided again that it's done in, in good faith and uh, appropriately disclosed. I think that's great because in an evolving market, you do need some latitude to experiment and try new things and see what works. So we were able to work. Be, with, with Stripe's Climate API to bring the market the product to market very quickly, which is great. The longer term vision is that similar to our relationship with the suppliers of soil organic carbons Nori will work directly with direct air capture project developers and others. Uh, one of the things that we're really excited about with this product is that while we were starting with soil organic carbon as one leg and direct air capture as the second leg, mm-hmm. you can think about it like a container. And you can put other credit types into each of those two legs. So you could put a a forestry credit in the first leg, for example, and you could put uh, enhanced rock weathering or or some other form of of credit in the second leg. And the way that we're thinking about that is we we, want to create some structure, some standardization to make it easier for the buyer to understand what they're buying, to take some of the burden off of them, to be able to construct a product that meets whatever objectives it is, because the the objectives are not uniform right now. Some companies are trying to make, are, are trying to find solutions along their net zero path. Other companies are more generally working to create a sustainability story. Other companies are looking at tools for recruitment, employee recruitment, engagement and retention. Other companies are looking for ways to offer products in turn to their own customers so our thinking was if we can construct a product that's essentially a container, solve that gap between the more durable credits being not being available today and, and, the, and the nature-based credits being available today, and then allow the customer to construct whatever package they like, including packages that may adhere to various different standards that they're looking to meet depending on where and, and how they operate, Uh, We thought that that was an advancement in the industry. And that's what we're looking to build over the long run, starting with this pilot that we launched in November.
0: Absolutely. It does sound like something very unique and uh, certainly not something I've come across elsewhere, at least. But on that note, I would like to revert a little bit to carbon farming as a component of the net zero ton. What's your perspective so far? Like, what are your observations of the market's development? For instance, how willing are farmers to start adopting regenerative farming uh, practices and start generating carbon credits?
1: So I don't have, on our team, there are the supply team, Jada and Radhika uh, and Rick, who deal more directly with the farmers, could could certainly speak with more authority to the mindset of the farmers. But that said, the USDA just published a report uh, to Congress uh, talking about the uh, the. the uh, some of the obstacles that farmers are, are facing in terms of participation in the voluntary carbon market. And I would say that, that some of their observations definitely we agree with. And none of these will be a surprise for anybody who's spent some time thinking about soil organic carbon and, and looking at this market, but uh, MRV or, uh, or MMRV, I should say, measurement, monitoring, uh, verification, and reporting is definitely one of the areas that was highlighted. The economics were another area that was highlighted. So, you know, some farmers are more willing to take risk than others, and and some have already converted over to regenerative agriculture. They don't do that wholesale. They start with maybe an acre and experiment. And as they get more comfortable, if they see that the yields are not declining or in some instances, in fact, be increasing, then they gradually start to roll the practices out until until eventually their entire farm may be uh, farmed using regenerative practices. So some of them are more entrepreneurial and a bit more willing to take risk and experiment. Others are very conservative and don't want to change anything. And, and that's true, I, I guess, of, of humans, broadly speaking. Uh, but having some incentives certainly helps. So if if you're a farmer and you're thinking longer term, if I make these changes to more regenerative practices, I can reduce my water consumption, I can improve the water quality, I can reduce my reliance on chemical fertilizers, insecticides, and then as a byproduct of that, there's a greater biodiversity, uh, maybe greater nutrient density in the soil. There's just a lot of really positive things that happen that I may be incented to do this. And if I look at the economics of it, and I say one other consequence of this change in practices is that my soil is going to capture and sequester more carbon and I can monetize that by creating carbon credits and selling them through a market like Nori, then that may be enough of a change in the economic equation for me to take a bit of risk and start to try to roll out the practices or to continue to undertake them if, if I have already. So the, the, the carbon really only stays in the soil if the farmer continues with the regenerative practices. And so to get them to continue if they can continue to monetize those credits, uh, it just helps overall. And that, I think, creates an interesting set of dynamics when you think about the political landscape in the U.S., the federal government and the agencies like the USDA, the EPA, the CFTC. Uh, When you think about a really compelling bipartisan story, I think soil organic carbon is about as good a case as you're going to find. On the one hand... On the Democratic side of the aisle, they like the idea of the positive climate impact of encouraging regenerative farming practices and and the associated soil sequestration. On the Republican side of the aisle, they like the notion of farmers being able to get paid for their stewardship of the land. And so while there might be really different fundamental motivations, both can agree that this market is a good thing. Uh, and and I think that's that's a really exciting thing for us because it, you know in, in, in a world today where it's really tough to find issues where you can get consensus even for different reasons, uh, this is a good example. And so I think the focus that you see from the USDA on this, the focus from policymakers, they understand that there are some obstacles. There are a range of solutions, everything from what we consider to be lower hanging fruit around definitions, uh, potentially the USDA getting involved in measurement, monitoring, verification, and reporting, uh, potentially getting involved with things like the modeling that's used to determine uh, carbon sequestration in soil is not deterministic. It's, it's not something that you can easily go out over thousands or tens of thousands of acres or even millions of acres and, and easily sample the soil uniformly across all of those. You have to do sampling. And so it's not deterministic in the same way that something, for example, like that would be where you can measure with greater precision the amount of carbon. Uh, so model, the models become important. The model is what underpins the credits and the determination of, of how much carbon has been captured or approximately how much carbon has been captured in the soil. And so the USDA sees all this, they've written this really great report. It's a long one, Nori gets mentioned a couple of times, but it's a really great report to Congress with some ideas about a technical advisory committee, uh, about consultants that could help farmers to navigate the transition to regenerative practices, understanding the variety of different incentives and uh, whether it's payments or tax breaks and how they interplay. So it's not, unfortunately, it's not a very simple landscape if you're a farmer. Uh, and, and I think there's opportunity over the next year or so to create greater simplicity and maybe for a few things that the policymakers can do. There, certainly changing changing the laws is a longer, more involved process, but getting uh, things done with the agencies within their current mandate, uh, it tends to be a bit easier. So some of what we've been thinking about and, and actually engaging uh, on Capitol Hill about with the agencies and with Congress, is where we think there are some of those near-term easier opportunities, and then some of our thoughts on longer-term where and how entities like the USDA can play a role to make this market easier for everybody involved, and and frankly, increase confidence. Uh, Some of these things would really be about helping people when they buy a carbon, a soil organic carbon credit, understanding that there's something real there, having some understanding of what the measurement of the quality of the thing is, and then ideally having some canonical authoritative definition that they can point to that helps them defend that if and when asked. Uh, so all that is, is the kind of thing that policymakers and regulators can help out with while not uh, needing to be overbearing in, in terms of regulations on a, a young and developing market.
0: Thank you. Uh, does Nori actually have its own MRV or do you rely on external parties like rating agencies and standardization bodies? How does it work exactly?
1: So I'll, I'll speak to the parts that I feel like I'm comfortable speaking to, uh, admitting readily that this is not my area of expertise. Radhika Mugavkar, uh and Rick Berg on our team would certainly be able to speak with greater authority, but I can speak to how we've structured it. And our approach to doing things. And so there's a theme that you'll find with Nori is that uh, the company likes to be as transparent as possible. And this was another thing that attracted to me, me to to work with the team here. In building other markets that I've worked on in the past, transparency has been a pretty important theme. I've written articles about it. I, I think creating transparency is just A lot of rules and regulations tend to be about trying to circumvent issues where there's a lack of transparency. Sometimes a lack of transparency is is necessary. Other times it creates an environment where nefarious actors can take advantage of that lack of transparency. And so being transparent, I think is the quickest, easiest way to demonstrate that you're acting, that you're a good actor. And so Nori looked at the markets Early on, and said, you know, that there's a lot. This is really ch- more challenging than it needs to be for farmers. We need to make this easier, and we also need to have some degree of independent oversight so that it's not a just take our word for it type scenario. And so, today, the credits that are generated by Nori rely on the Soil Metrics model, which uh, is owned by Indigo, and and that's how we how we determine today the amount of carbon that we believe is uh, is sequestered in the soil as a result of the change in practices. And so that's how we do the calculation. Then we have our own proprietary methodology, and and that's the kind of data that we collect, what it takes for a farmer to enroll in the program, what information is necessary in order for us to create a credit. And that includes independent third-party verification. And that's important because we can collect the data, the farmers can provide the data, but we do want some independent oversight where someone who's a disinterested party can come in, look at our methodology, look at the data we've collected from the farmer, make sure that it comports with the methodology, and then verify that the information was complete and and met the requirements of the methodology. And only at that point will we then issue any credits. And so it's really a matter of governance. We we one of the things that, admittedly, uh, has been criticized. I would say about Nori's regenerative tons is that we don't do uh, soil sampling, and part of the reason for that are really you know th- that wasn't in necessarily a, a you know a quick or easy decision, but the the justification for it at least in the near term is that. Soil sampling can be inconsistent. It's a, a pretty, you know, for, for no one that's ever been out on a, on a farm, taking a soil sample requires somebody to physically go walk around the acres, take a sample, a core sample out of the ground that has to get packaged up, shipped off to a lab, or it then gets analyzed. So it can create some degree of confidence. You know, there is some question about how much more precision do you get from doing that versus looking at the model. Uh, and so at least in the near term, nori has opted to not do the sampling uh but then the logical question would be well what can you do or how do you deal with um, the uncertainty that you might have as a result of making that decision and the answer is that you have to look to the methodology and essentially do a haircutting so if you're if you're not we could get greater precision potentially with more with sampling and in fact, if we were to do that, we might actually be able to issue more credits per acre. Uh, but what we've effectively done is, is taken our methodology and used a discount factor to account for not doing sampling. And we believe that that allows us to be conservative enough that, that the sampling is, is not necessary in the current methodology.
0: Okay, thank you. And a final question before we wrap up. Uh, could you please share a little bit more about your partnership with Bayer? I know that you formed it a little bit over a year ago, and uh, I'd like to know what that partnership looks like. And do you have more of this type of partnerships in the making?
1: Absolutely. So the bear relationship was another one of the factors that I really thought was interesting in my evaluation of Nori and my decision to join. In building markets, one of the most difficult problems for any new marketplace is the chicken and egg of liquidity. So you have to have a concurrence of buyers and sellers showing up at your market at the same time. There has to be enough product and there has to be enough available at the price that they're willing to buy or sell it for in order for you to have transactions. And that sounds dead obvious when you state it, but, but achieving it is actually can be really, really hard. And there's a variety of different ways that markets can seek to overcome that chicken and egg problem. And one of the ways that a market can succeed is by getting access to unique supply of product and and hopefully product that people want. And so looking at the the market as it exists today and, and even Nori's history. So Nori's worked historically directly with American farmers. It's really great because you get to work with the actual people directly. You get to see their farms when you buy a Nori Uh, regenerative ton today. If if you went to the website and bought one, you get a certificate that shows you the farm and the farmer that you bought it from, including in some instances down to the actual field where the carbon was sequestered. So that's great from a very, from a texture standpoint for really getting the richness of what's happening underneath this abstract notion of a carbon removal credit. But it's hard to scale. It's a really high touch process. You're dealing with individual farmers who have a farm to run and it just, it can be, it can be fairly involved. And so I would say another thing where the Nori team and I had a good meeting of the minds is we think about things from a systemic standpoint. So it's great to build this business where we're working directly with the farmers, generating the credits. But if we want to achieve our ultimate objective, which is to, actually have a material impact on reversing climate change, which was why Noria was founded, then we need to scale this thing up. We need to do it massively. And the only way you're going to do that is by working with partners who have the wherewithal to scale businesses as well. There's a global conglomerate. They have the wherewithal. They work with thousands of farmers who are farming millions of acres of farmland globally. We've started with them working in the United States it gives us an opportunity to dramatically scale up the supply available on Nori's platform. And that's what we're in the process of doing. In fact, last month, November was a, was a good month and a big month for Nori. We issued the first Bayer NRTs. We launched the pilot version of the Nori uh, net zero ton. So we had a lot going on in November. But coming back to my point about strategy, as we bring the bear supply out to the market, we'll be uniquely positioned in that, Buyers looking for soil organic carbon credits will be able to come to Nori to find them at a scale that's generally not available on competing marketplaces. So that's a theme that I think you'll see with Nori as we progress over the coming years is we want to offer differentiated products, things that are unique, things that have value add where we've actually sought to solve a problem that we've heard from the market as we've done with the net zero tonne. And Bayer uh, is the type of partner that we want to be able to work with who are going to help us to build Nori's business to scale and and then the voluntary carbon market along with us.
0: Excellent. Matt, thanks so much for taking the time to join us on this podcast today. I really appreciate all the knowledge and insights you shared with us. And uh, I wish you and Nori an exciting and successful 2024.
1: Thank you, Violet. Always a pleasure to speak with you and appreciate the opportunity to be on the show today. Thanks again.
0: If you enjoyed this episode of the Carbon Sations podcast and would like to hear more conversations like this, please be sure to subscribe. We really appreciate the support.